Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. And I'm AP Andy. And uh, today, um, you know, we often talk about the cycle of struggles or the progression of radical and direct struggles that periodically emerge to help us more fully imagine what it would really mean to defeat the state and capitalism. And of course, we're in the course of one such struggle right now, which we can call the George Floyd uprising. Uh, but we want to look at that in relation to another momentous struggle um, that peaked in 2016, 2017, the Standing Rock blockade against the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, and its precedents and what's happened since. So joining us today is Nick Estes, a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe and assistant professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico the host of the Red Nation podcast and the author of a great book that we just read, Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Long Tradition of Indigenous Resistance. Uh, Nick, thank you for joining us. How are you this evening? How are things in Albuquerque? I'm great. It's hot as hell in Albuquerque, and I'm really impressed that you pronounced everything correctly in the bio and most people <laughs> don't do that so <laughs> and it was it was no prompt from me either you did it all on your own so that's uh you know that's awesome <laughs> I, I think i'll have plenty of yeah i'll be able to pronounce mispronounce some things later yeah, on but i fuck, i did look up, up whether it was brule or brule <laughs> <laughs> so i i'm a little bit tired today because i was out all night at the city hall occupation um which i you know maybe i'll describe that in a moment but why don't you let us know uh what what the, what's been going on in new mexico i remember there was uh a, a attempted statue removal or a successful statue removal that ended up in a in a shooting yeah, actually, maybe two weeks ago. Yeah, so there there was actually um, several successful statue removals. Uh, so just the mere kind of like threat of indigenous people and black people protesting statues spurred several kind of you know county commissions, uh, city councils to basically begin the process of removing these racist statues, um, which for decades, indigenous activists have been trying to remove. So, for example, in Alcalde, New Mexico, there was once um, the most vandalized statue in the United States. It was a Don de Oyate statue. And for those of you that don't know, Don de Oyate is, or Oñate is a uh, Spanish conquistador who was famous for chopping off the feet of Acoma Pueblo uh, men, uh, but also he was a rapist. He was a mutilator and he was a genocider. And his reign of terror uh, in the uh, 16th, I mean, excuse me, the 17th century resulted in the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. And so this statue existed at a, at a uh, Oñate Heritage Center, I think is what it's called, in Alcalde, New Mexico, which is in Española. And after it was built, uh, you know, Pueblo activists chop the left foot off uh, kind of in, in, in to remember that this guy was a brutal kind of mutilator and genocider and ever since then it's been vandalized yes. repeatedly um, in the course of you know this this time period uh, there was a lot of statues being built it was it was around the sort of uh, 500 year anniversary of Columbus's voyage and what exists here in the place like the Southwest, especially in a place like New Mexico, which may not you know, translate well to other places, is this idea of like a tri-cultural harmony. 
Um, so, for example, there's in the 90s uh, specifically, there was an attempt to like recuperate Columbus, you know, and to say that it's part of a Spanish kind of tradition, even though he was Italian, but nonetheless, he was, you know, um, employed by the Spanish crown. And so they began to fabricate uh, and it was primarily like Anglo uh, folks. It wasn't really like this, the Spanish descendant or the Nuevo Mexicanos, as they call themselves here, or even the Henisaros who are like the, the kind of detribalized indigenous people, or, you know, like in other places they call them mestizo, um, in other places they call them, you know, <laughs> uh, Mexicanos uh, or uh, Mexican-Americans. It's a long, complicated history, right? There's kind of like overlapping colonialisms. There's Spanish colonialism. There's, you know, the treatment uh, by the Mexican state uh, after, uh, you know, Spanish or after Mexican independence. And then there's, you know, Anglo-colonialism with U.S. invasion. Um, but this myth of the tricultural kind of like harmony kind of came about because, you know, each state was trying to like create its own kind of like founding myths. Right. So, you know, as part of statehood in 1912, I believe it was when New Mexico was uh, allowed to become into uh, come into the union. They actually had to like make an entire population white because it was a minority majority or a, a, a majority non-white state, much like Arizona was. And so they created a race. They created the race of Mexican-American, right? And, and indigenous people fell into that category. Uh, Henisaro people fell into that category um, in a way to kind of alleviate or to like to uh, create kind of a, a like a European kind of con uh, history out of this they began advocating for that tricultural harmony. So they have the quote-unquote Hispano, which just b basically means Spanish, um, the Anglo, and then the indigenous, right? And, that, and of course, it's, it's anti-black because it completely erases the fact that there's been a, a, you know, an African population here for quite some time, ever since the Spanish came and brought slaves. And so this is the, this is the history that uh, indigenous people have been challenging primarily um, and, and confronting specifically with the Oñate statues, but there were also uh, statues for uh, the, the uh, there was a, there was a, they call it the obelisk. It's kind of a weird thing. It honors both the Confederate soldiers and the Union soldiers who, who died at the Oof, hands of quote, both sides. Savage. Yeah, both sides. <laughs> all lives matter. Um, right. <laughs> but it was basically like all lives matter who, who died at the hands of, quote unquote savage Indians and there was this obelisk in the state capital in Santa Fe um, that that had this you know etched onto a stone and over the years indigenous activists you know would would hammer out uh, savage and so it just said Indians but it was still like a grotesque monument that is now being taken down as well it's been vandalized multiple times there's a statue to Kit Carson who was um you know he was he he was a union soldier he fought you know on the side of the union but during the civil war his his role under the the command of somebody like abraham lincoln was basically to round up uh, apache and navajo people and put them on a, a concentration camp for navajo people it was called Huelde, which is the the navajo long walk and i think around four thousand uh, navajo people um starved to death in this concentration camp called bosque redondo in the campus that I work uh, at the University of New Mexico, there's actually a, st a student dorm that's named after the concentration camp called uh, Redondo Hall. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, man. students have been uh, Navajo students have been like advocating for the you know the change of these kinds of things for 
for quite some time. But luckily, or not luckily, but because of the the heightened consciousness, uh, primarily because of you know a black rebellion, a black led rebellion, we are able to remove these statues and we're able to take them down. Uh, decades, you know, like the whole the whole Lenin quote, right, where decades pass where nothing happens, right, and then weeks pass where decades happen or something like that. Um, that's literally what happened here because for decades, uh, indigenous activists have been trying to tear these statues down. Um, but because of the, the conditions right now of struggle, um, they've, in, they've intensified and they've accelerated that process. Um, and so I guess like the, the you know, th those are huge victories. Um, a lot of black, uh, you know, organizers in the city, there's Black Power, uh, Building Black Power New Mexico um, has been at the forefront of advocating these things. There's indigenous organizations, the organization that I belong to and help co-found the Red Nation. Uh, but there's also like Pueblo Action Alliance. There's a whole coalition that has been working together and it's been really beautiful, really amazing. Uh, at the same time, and this is something y'all are probably interested in hearing about, there's been a rise of white supremacist uh, militias in the area. And so I believe it was on June um, 8th, um, <clears throat> there was a... a um, a protest to get, um, excuse me, not June 8th, it was June 15th. There was a protest to remove an Oñate statue that was outside of the Albuquerque Museum. And the city had like, you know, basically said like, this statue's absurd, you know, it was, it was donated to the city, like it was never, you know, city funds weren't used to it, so we're, uh, to, to put it up, so we're gonna just take it down. Um, so it was on its way out right and there was a there was a healing and reconciliation thing at the park we weren't involved in it we were up north getting rowdy <laughs> um trying to get down the other statue but we were on our way back to albuquerque because um some comrades were sending us uh, text messages saying hey you know the armed militia showed up it's getting really violent here um we need people to just you know there's a lot of young people there was there was a youth uh, organization that was actually leading the actions there and so they were like it's it's getting violent. You guys need to show up. And so we showed up, we rolled in. As soon as we rolled in, um, we like literally just whipped the car around, did a UE and we were facing the crowd and we saw that it was kind of erupting into this, um, this kind of like fist fight or this brawl. And we couldn't really see what was going on initially. And as we turned around and we started getting out of the car, this individual, you know, um, he pulled out a gun and that's when like this kind of confrontation happened and uh you know scott williams as he's now identified who's you know part of local uh anti-fascist uh, organizing in the city you know tried to defend the crowd and like pulled out a, a skateboard it wasn't you know it was just on the ground he picked up a skateboard and tried to hit the gun out of the guy's hand and the guy you know aimed towards the crowd actually you know from the angle we were sitting at actually looked like he fired just kind of like you know randomly into the crowd and Scott was hit as he was running away three times in the back and he collapsed on the ground uh, and then these militia guys came out and just surrounded him you know they were when we pulled up they were surrounding the statue right the monument to white supremacy and then this white supremacist whose name is Stephen Baca he's he's kind of he's kind of known as a local antagonizer and just uh, you know, just a racist. He's he's defended the the Albuquerque Police Department. When I first moved here in 2013, I met him at a city council meeting. He ran a you know a page 
that was a Albuquerque Police Department support page, like you know, because thoughts and prayers to cops or whatever who are killing people. Um, <laughs> Something a real normal person does yeah. is run a support uh, page for the police. Totally. They don't get enough support out there. <laughs> totally normal. So yeah, this guy, like we were sitting there, you know, we ran after he shot into the crowd. We ran um, towards the gunfire. We were about a maybe like fifty yards away. We ran into the gunfire because we didn't, you know, we thought it was actually going to erupt into like, uh, like shooting people because there were so many guns. And this guy, like the the militia guys, just kind of surrounded him. They were just kind of like casually, just you know, pointing their assault rifles at the crowd and yelling at people. The cops didn't come until like, you know, I don't know, like it seemed like ten minutes before they finally showed up. And they just kind of like waltzed in like, oh, what, you know, what happened? You know, there's a, a man bleeding out on the ground. Uh, Scott, Scott Williams' uh, parents were actually there in the crowd. Um, they didn't actually know that it was their Jesus. son that got shot. And his dad is a, a retired EMT. And so he begins, you know, trying to do um, emergency medical services on him. He doesn't even know it's his son, right? And so this oh is God. all unfolding. The cops come. The cops kind of like are like sitting there like talking with the uh, they're kind of just talking with the, the New Mexico Civil Guard guys, the militia guys. And then finally they realize they're like, oh, there's a shooting. We don't even know who shot whom. So they begin like disarming the New Mexico Civil Guard guys. They uh, detain um, <clears throat> Stephen Baca, the shooter. And Stephen Baca was on his phone the entire time. And, you know, um, we could hear him like, you know, he was trying to call somebody. But as they as they detained him, he said he looked up at the cop and he said, my dad is BCSO, which stands for Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office. His dad was a former the former uh, sheriff of Bernalillo County. Right. So they you know, they hauled him off. Everything, you know, everything kind of happened uh, really quickly. And I actually like, you know. I've done a lot of anti-police like uh, violence work and, you know, been working on, you know, defunding the police in the city since I've gotten, you know, since I've arrived here. Actually, like in my mind, I was like, oh, now they're going to start collecting testimony from people like the hundreds of people who just witnessed the shooting. And instead, they started letting off flashbangs and tear gas and the entire crowd dispersed. I even saw a woman who was like, hey, I saw the shooting. I, I, you know, I got the whole thing on my phone. Like, here's my, you know, here's my contact information. Who do I send this to? I want to, like, give a witness testimony. And the cop looked at her and said, ma'am, you're interfering with my job right now. And she's like, well, what the fuck is your job then? <laughs> and, and so right. so that all happened. And just last Monday um, on the 22nd, Scott, or excuse me, um, Stephen Baca was released from jail and they dropped the shooting charge against him. They they slapped three other charges on him. Um, one was like it was from assaults that he had committed uh, leading up to the shooting. But the police report came out and it made it look like it was an affirmative kind of self defense case. You can you can Google the video. You can find it. This guy was like there to antagonize. He was being trailed um, by and filmed by former Albuquerque Police Department uh, officers. This guy named Alex. Um, uh, Maestra, he he runs this group called Albuquerque Raw, and he's also you know he's a former police officer, and he goes to all the Trump protests, he goes to all the you know the Proud Boys protests, and he films you know uh, the 
the protests to basically incriminate people, right? And so he was there filming Baca the entire time. And, you know, it just raises the question, like, what is the level, you know, what is the, what is the level of complicity of the Albuquerque Police Department with this shooting? They knew who he was because his dad was a sheriff's, uh, a sheriff at one point in time of the county. And also, like, this guy was like an APD asset in the sense that he ran a pro Albuquerque Police Department support page for quite some time. And also he ran for city council um, uh, last year uh, on the premise of like, you know, increasing poor laws in the city, like making it, even though it's illegal to sleep on the street, he wanted to make it even more illegal to sleep on the street, right? Um, no, it's really amazing uh, uh, how much like, you know, the, the, these, uh, these statue removal incidents, they get portrayed as kind of this like petty or infantile thing exactly. of like crowds of people just attacking whatever statue they see. Oh, culture and, wars, SJWs, yeah, the cancel like. culture is how <laughs> Trump's framing it now. Um, but whenever it happens, there's first of all a reckoning with what these statues are. Probably a lot of people thinking about like who who these these monuments are to for the first time. They probably pass it by a million times and never thought about it. And second, it reveals a lot of the dynamics and powers at work. And, and this is what happened last night at the New York City Hall occupation where, you know, for a week there was this peaceful protest, um, this like uh, kind of sit-in basically led by a, uh, you know, a left liberal group called Vocal uh, demanding $1 billion cut from the NYPD budget. And that budget vote is going on right now as we record. It's going to be very clear that they're going to cut uh, a billion dollars. He's got by, big you know, air quotes going right there moving, on cut. Moving that money around, basically not decreasing police headcount at all, uh, not really doing any uh, any meaningful defunding of the police. Um, and knowing that, people at that occupation began to uh, escalate last night. They took more space. They blocked the street. And some people were, were damaging a court building, the surrogate's court. Uh, which is uh, a very beautiful Beaux Arts building that I've passed a million times, but never really even thought about what it was before. Uh, people, you know, painted anti-police slogans, slogans like cancel rents, you know, vandalized some of the statues. And near- as fans of brutalism on this podcast, <laughs> we appreciate any sort of behavior against Beaux Arts. <laughs> Beaux Arts are canceled. It was a very brutal attack on Beaux Arts, for sure. And, and nearby... Um, some people threw some red paint at a George Washington monument. One of these, one of these statues of, of George Washington flanked by two uh, loyal Native Americans, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, Trump has been tweeting about that today. Uh, we are tracking down two anarchists who threw paint on a magnificent George Washington statue in Manhattan. We have them on tape. They will be prosecuted. Turn yourselves in now. That's what you say when you totally know who the people are who did it. I just yell. Um, when I, read, and, when I know, read Donald Trump's tweets, I just yell them out. That, I mean, they're meant to be yelled. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, so a- as a result of all, the, you know, all, all of this uh, atrocious attacks on uh, fine statues and, and streets and such, um, today the media is talking about the occupation and talking about what the occupation wants and talking about how what the city council is doing is not meeting their demands. Uh, and uh, so finally there's some coverage about it, but of course a lot of that coverage is, oh, these, you know, uh, these outside agitators are ruining this peaceful protest and taking it over, and uh, council members are blaming the DSA and gentrifiers and nonsense like that. But at least we're starting to talk about this thing in a meaningful way, 
and not just having a kind of a silence from the press. Yeah, violence against statues is a major problem in our society. <laughs> Please, won't someone think of the statues? It, it's similar to the whole dynamic that you saw during the uh, the unrest and the uprising over the last, God, it's been, what, five weeks now at this point, which is even a few weeks ago after kind of the high point of militant street action, uh, the protests continued and have continued, um, but... You know, for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, they've they've de-escalated or they've turned into something else. And uh, you simply don't hear about them anymore from the from the ma mainstream media, uh, because apparently there's not a story there. All of this, this, this humongous, brutal, vicious carceral state by itself is not an actual issue that we should be confronting. We did that for like three weeks. And there, now I guess there's no reason to talk. Yeah, about what's it. the hook? Right. Right. Like, it's, it's not like uh You'd think that continuous, ongoing violence and death would be enough of a hook to get the news to write about it, but that's obviously n almost never been the case. Well, Jamie, you made a good point recently about these statue removals, which is that um, there's one way that these happen where, like, uh, de Blasio says, okay, now it's the right time to remove this uh, patently racist statue of Teddy Roosevelt and his people of color servants. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're gonna and and we're gonna do it with dignity and put it in another museum or something like that. And then there's like a group of people who get together and say, "Fuck this statue! Uh, this is our city. We're tearing this down right now." Um, so maybe this is a good time to to keep talking about the statues for a minute and talk about some more controversial statues uh, that are uh, being threatened with removal. Um, and let's just go for it. What about a Blinken statues? Should those come down? Ooh. Um, there's one in Boston that is uh, being looked at because it is Lincoln um, standing over a, a kneeling, servile slave implied that Lincoln is uh, helping him rise to his feet. Oh, um, yeah, I've seen that one. That's so creepy. What do you think? Should we cancel this statue? What do you think, Nick? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, if you want to go to the, the, like, headquarters of ugly presidential statues... Just just type in Rapid City. Rapid City, like every street corner in Rapid City, South Dakota, <laughs> a place where I grew up, has a presidential statue on it, right? And You talk about that city a lot in the book. Yeah. I, I had never heard of it before, but before your book, actually. Yeah, it's I mean it's it's amazing. It's like and the funny thing about it is that like, okay, first of all, like Lincoln, you know, even even Grant, they weren't even presidents of that land at the time. So it's you know, half those presidents who exist or like at least, you know, maybe a third of them um, that exist on those street corners weren't even presidents of the territory at the time. So, like, what's the point? But Lincoln is a, you know, Lincoln is a controversial uh, figure because people want a white savior for the Civil War. It's an easy narrative, right? Um, I, I've been attacked, you know, uh, personally and professionally for saying like well that's what the confederacy wants you know like that's what the uh, the neo-confederates and that's what the south wants and it's such a oversimplification of like racism and w white supremacy in this country it like ignores the fact that like the northern kind of like industrialists were just were equally as racist as their southern counterparts they had no interest in the abolition of slavery um, you know, at that at that particular time, nor did Abraham Lincoln. And not only that, Abraham Lincoln was one of the most bloody presidents when it came to indigenous uh, policy. 
for example, 1862, he signed into law the Homestead Act to, as a as a pressure valve for like white workers out, you know, east, so that they would stop like you know clamoring about unfair wages and this and that, and we would just open up the west, kill a bunch of Indians, right, and then settle white people on there in this yeoman farming emp- empire that you know Jefferson had imagined. Um, and 1862, you know, Homestead Act resulted, you know, in the the annexation or at least the the, the theft of over 270 million acres of indigenous territory. One quarter of white uh, white people alive today, white adults, I should say, alive today, are direct beneficiaries uh, from the Homestead Act, right? And so a lot of those families who settled on indigenous land ended up selling that land, right? It was basically free when they bought it. And then, of course, over the cor- you know over the course of uh, several decades, Congress passed several like in, you know subsidized the improvement of that land through irrigation, the Desert Lands Acts, et cetera, et cetera. And then he passed you know the the Morale Act, and I think it was in 1862 as well. And the Morale Act created modern land grant institutions that were basically carving out large swaths of territory from in, from indigenous people. And then putting it into trust, uh, you know, for these, you know, Cornell, for example, is a land grant institution. It's benefited quite, quite, uh, you know, quite, quite steadily from the theft of indigenous lands in places like Minnesota, for example. Um, the the annexation of indigenous territory from one single treaty, uh, I believe it was in the 1830s, uh, where Dakota people, my ancestors, you know, under uh, coercion. And, you know, the threat of violence signed over all but like 22 uh, miles of, of territory, a narrow strip. That territory became the property of, you know, the University of, of Minnesota. And then also Cornell has, you know, um, has claims to that, that particular land base and has benefited and profited from it. We did a whole episode of this on my uh, podcast you know, called Land Grab, uh, land grab Universities. Um, and then... In 1863, or excuse me, in 1862, this is a bad year for indigenous people. In 1862, uh, there was the, U- the, the so-called Dakota Uprising. If we want to talk about the origins of the current uprising, it could, it could be traced back to the Dakota Uprising, where my ancestors you know, took up arms against the United States government and fought uh, primarily Scandinavian and German settlers who were you know, squatting on our land. And preventing us, you know, from not only hunting, but also receiving the treaty annuities that were guaranteed us through the cession of territory. And so that resulted and that culminated in the the concentration camps at, uh, you know, Fort Snelling um, and then also the mass hanging of 38 Dakota patriots in uh, Makato or uh, Mankato, as it's called in, as a, in bastard English, <laughs> um, in, in 1862, uh, in December, just weeks before President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And to make matters worse, in 1863, you know, he ordered uh, what were known as the punitive campaigns or the columns of vengeance. Um, Selby and, uh, excuse me, um, I don't know. God, I'm sorry. Uh, I forgot their names. Uh, I hope just edited it out. But basically, the columns of vengeance culminated in Union soldiers massacring 400 Dakota and Lakota people at a Buffalo hunt camp in Whitestone Hill in what is currently North Dakota. The survivors 
of those of that massacre became the you know they were the ancestors of Standing Rock, um, you know what later became the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, um, and that was a largely forgotten massacre. If you Google it, it's you know there isn't much written about it. It's something that actually came to light during the Standing Rock uprising in 2016, and then in 1864. There was the Sand Creek Massacre at the hands of the Colorado you know, State Militia um, of Cheyenne people. That one's very much recognized and memorialized. Um, and then, of course, as I said earlier, you know, there was the Kit Carson rounding up uh, Navajo and Apache people for the long walk. Um, so this was under you know, Abraham Lincoln's uh, ad- ad- administration and his, you know, his general, uh, Robert, excuse me, <laughs> his general Ulysses S. Grant, who later became president himself was, um, known for his extermination campaigns. And I think this moment in time, I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but if it airs before the 4th of July, uh, probably tomorrow, probably tomorrow. Okay. So mm-hmm. we're days, we're days before the 4th of July, you know, Grant sent, Custer, another Union veteran, to kill and crush the Lakota Confederacy with the Cheyenne and Arapaho uh, people who had resisted, you know, they were considered hostiles, they were quote-unquote off the reservation, that's where that terminology comes from, as genocidal origins. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah, so don't say it. (laughs) Uh, But if you do say it, know know what it means uh, for indigenous people, right? And so they were there to like. Uh, I guess I'll do like like hips like uh, hipster colonialism and say it ironically. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I might have said it once on this show without thinking. Oops, ouch! You're, uh, you're canceled. Was, wasn't thinking about it. I think I edited it out. Oh or, or well. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Sam Cedar also said it and apologized. Oh well. We can we can learn from our mistakes. It's like weirdly a part of the American vernacular in a way that most people don't even think about. It's it's, uh, it's like um, pretty gross. It's like um, I was uh, GYP'd. You know, they used to say all the time when you were a kid, and I didn't even realize until I was an adult that like to say something, you were gypped is like an uh, anti-gypsy yeah. thing. That's a racial slur. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we got we got a lot of. Slurs and genocide in in our vernacular. It's kind of nuts. Um, Yeah, what you were just talking about reminded me of this article. I don't know if you saw it recently in the New York Times about um, free land Mm -hmm. and people taking advantage of free land programs and uh, free land that's been in people's families for a long time. Um, It has one line about where that land came from. Yeah. But then it it spends the rest of the article talking about, like, all the cool houses that all these white people built on their free land. Like, it's got one sentence. It says, free land programs have been part of America's DNA for centuries, encouraging families to settle in more remote or challenging environments. The nation's early land grant programs gave away land that had been seized from Native Americans. But land grants exist not just in history. They continue to provide opportunities for Americans to live in stunning locations or to pick plots in areas not yet settled. Many who have chosen this path feel like explorers or cherish the opportunity to build dream homes. Blah, 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 blah. I think that was like, I think that was a New York Times editorial. And I think that that line that you talked about, like how uh, this was land that was actually expropriated from Native Americans was actually added in after the fact. I think it was an edit because so many people are like, what the fuck is this shit? It's like 
back in the good old days when we could just kill Indians in peace. <laughs> you know, right? That's really what it sounded like yeah. to us. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, that's a, it's a really it's a really good point, you know. And um, where I was going with the, the the whole Custer thing and off the reservation was, you know, there was there were you know there was that was kind of the last generation of indigenous people on the northern plains who lived free, right? And they're trying to be rounded up onto reservations and you know custer was going to go uh win a big victory right on the 100 year anniversary of the signing of the declaration of independence right on june 25th he hoped to secure kind of a victory of one century of you know quote unquote american democracy and we whooped his ass you know we killed him like we killed him and his entire regiment they didn't even stand a chance and you know like it, we've never been as as Lakota people specifically been forgiven for that that original you know that that sin right because the seventh cavalry that Custer led um, that we wiped out you know came back in 1890 uh, after the United States deployed half the standing army in 1890 right imagine half the standing army was deployed against starving unarmed horseless people. You know, who, you know, we were confined to the reservation. We weren't really militarily defeated. We were defeated because, you know, under Ulysses S. Grant and his Buffalo extermination campaign, we had no means to live as we once had, right? And we were forced to kind of come into the reservation because they couldn't militarily defeat us. And so to add insult to injury after starving us, taking our horses, um, they, they massacred, you know, uh, 250 to 300 people, mostly women and children at Woundini in 1890. And I think this was like the day after Christmas, I believe. And as the soldiers were going in and putting bayonets and the people who were still breathing on the ground, um, they, were, they could be heard muttering under their breath, remember Custer, right? Who is Custer? Custer is a, a Union Civil War veteran, right? These, you know, who's Grant? He's a Union Civil War veteran. He's the, he was the general. This is the legacy. And so I think it's, it's insincere and it's disingenuous to say that, like, to reduce the Civil War to this kind of, like, black-white binary, right? It also, you know, completely eclipses the fact that the reason why the North won the Civil War is because black people on plantations basically went on strike and began, you know, deserting the plantations and what Du Bois called, you know, a W.E.B. Du Bois called in Black Reconstruction a general strike. Yeah, so this is my my solution for that Lincoln statue where he's, uh, you know, towering over this uh, this slave rising from his chains is just switch the heads <laughs> because it was really the, the, the slaves freeing themselves that pushed Lincoln into having the right position eventually. And that's the same dynamic today. Like the the oppressed people need to push the the people in power towards doing something marginally better because they're never going to do it on their own. <laughs> that's right. And they'll get the credit for it in the end. But don't, but that's don't a you, very good transition. But don't you think though mm-hmm. that like this is like that might play into the fears of like great replacement because they're like oh no now 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 they're going to do these you know these brown people are going to do to us what we did to them you know it's like it's it's like that mm. whole like um i don't know if there there was something that was going around is like imagine if black people were uh, white slave owners it's like it's a complete fabrication like you know whiteness in this country is entirely constructed around the notion of fear right the declaration of independence mm-hmm. was written 
based on fear of slave insurrections and slave revolts and the so-called, quote-unquote, merciless Indian savages on the Western frontier, right? Right. You, you mentioned that Custer's last stand is so it's such an important story because it's a situation where they lost and it makes it look like these, uh, these noble explorers came under attack right. uh, from savages when it was a, a campaign of offense. And I think um, with the, the last, the, the final boss uh, uh, <laughs> statue I want to talk about yes. is about that as well, which is Mount Rushmore. Uh, Trump is going to have a Mount Rushmore rally on the 3rd, um, and he's framing the whole thing around, you know, defending our heritage, defending our culture, which is under attack from, you know, people who want to remove this beautiful statue, uh, you know, the, the evil Chinese who have sent this horrible, invisible disease upon us and all Chi- this nonsense. Chinese have been gunning for Mount Rushmore for a long time. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be victimization there, even though it's clear as day what this statue is. Who's John McCain's daughter? She's on The View. I always forget her name. Oh, Megan. McMegan. Did you see her tweet? She's like, she's like, pretty soon we're going to be debating whether or not we're going to blow up Mount Rushmore. And it's like, true story. <laughs> and here we are. Uh, the day that that happens will be a great day for humanity. And just, just in case our listeners don't know, uh, wh- what is Mount Rushmore or what, what was Mount Rushmore uh, uh, built upon? It's Mount Trashmore. Um, it's built upon lies and genocide. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, so I guess the, the serious answer to that question is, you know, Mount Rushmore was named for a white guy who was illegally trespassing into our territory to mine gold, you know, in violation of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, he stumbled upon this uh, this bluff that we know as Tunkashi La Sakpe, which actually means the six grandfathers, in acknowledgement, I believe, of the six directions, north, east, you know, southwest, up and down, um, because the Black Hills itself is a, you know, it's literally the cultural, uh, the spiritual center of our universe, right? It, we call it Chesapa, uh, or, you know, the modern term is, is Pahasapa, but the, the original name of it is Chesapa, which means the Black Ridge. And that kind of sacred landscape or cultural geography extends all the way to the Teton Mountains, right? Uh, which are also named after us. Titoa is actually a Lakota word. It actually means Lakota. Um, and, you know, this was the heart of our, our universe. All of our creation stories, you know, it's like it's our Mecca, for lack of a better analysis, right? And so it was also the prized possession for the United States because it was, you know, they found gold. They discovered gold there. Custer actually discovered gold there. Um, and in the, I believe it was in the early 1930s, Gutsen, this Danish, the son of Danish immigrants, Gutsen Borglum, you know, saw this place and thought it would be a really beautiful place to create what he understood as, you know, the shrine of democracy in these four presidents who really represented the uniqueness of, of the United States. Prior to this, he was commissioned to, you know, blast out Stone Mountain in Georgia. I believe it's right outside of uh, Atlanta, Georgia, or no, it's in North Carolina. I apologize. It's in North Carolina. And if anyone knows anything about Stone Mountain, it was actually a sacred site to the indigenous people there. I, th- I believe the Cherokee were the last kind of people who were pushed out who had relations with that particular uh, rock formation, sacred site. But it was also where the clan, the Ku Klux Klan, had reconstituted itself and reunited 
um, in the early 20th century. So it had a historical significance. Gutzon Borglum himself, the sculptor of Mount Rushmore, was a member of the clan, a card-carrying member of the clan. He uh, was commissioned to create a monument to the Confederacy to the South. So he he made a monument to uh, Jefferson Davis, uh, Robert E. Lee, and Stonewall Jackson. They're still there, and that that monument still exists, right? And so he you know he was commissioned to create another racist monument. Uh, on another sacred site in the Black Hills. And there's a lot of speculation, like I'll just be honest, there's a lot of speculation about like his, you know, the role that indigenous peoples, primarily Lakota people uh, offered in like, you know, like blessing, quote unquote, his, his project. Um, it's hard to tell because at that moment in time, Lakota people were at a very like low point. We were confined to reservations. We actually couldn't leave reser- our reservations without a pass. Um, we couldn't dance. We couldn't sing our own language. You know, like, well, hello, you know, hello, Christianity. Couldn't dance, couldn't sing our own language. Uh, all of our spiritual traditions were banned, and so everything had to move underground. So somebody like Black Elk, who plays a prominent role, I don't write about this in the book, so you guys are getting some, you know, different history. But Black Elk okay. play, plays a prominent role. He's actually up for sainthood, right? The Catholic Church is trying to make him a saint. But the miracles he performed ironically happened before he converted to Catholicism so I don't know what that says about that religion but um, it was when he was a medicine man a Lakota medicine man he performed these these uh, miracles I guess and that's why he's you know he's up for sainthood anyways he had his vision his prophetic vision uh, at a place that was you know renamed um, uh, Harney Peak after a a Union Army or a a U.S. military officer who massacred uh, primarily women. Um, we called him Woman Killer. Um, so we kind of joked that it was called Woman Killer Peak. It's actually called Hihank Hagapaha. Um, but the, he had his vision there. And they wanted him because he represented kind of, you know, his book became famous. It was kind of famous uh, locally. Uh, his, you know, it gave a testimony of the Wundanee Massacre, et cetera, et cetera. And so they wanted him to commemorate Mount Rushmore when it was completed, I believe, in 1941. And so they invited him out. And so remember, you can't dance. You can't pray in your own language. You can't even speak your own language, right? But the only opportunity that Indian agents gave Lakota people to speak their own language or to dance was at Fourth of July celebrations. And so that kind of emerged the modern powwow scene and the modern kind of like... Uh, Indian celebrations that you see on indigenous reservations because they were only allowed to celebrate national holidays. And so he was invited. Yeah. And you he, can only celebrate on the birthday of the country that massacred your people. Yes. That's sick. It is. It's very sick. And, you know, like people kind of always point out how, you know, there's this, there's a lot of uh, indigenous people who serve in the military. It's It's because the United States has distorted our traditions um, through things like this, right? Um, but anyways, you know, he was up there and they say that he like blessed the, you know, the monument. It's, it's unclear what he actually said. So there's that history and it needs to be talked about as well. But in the 1970s, you know, AIM activists renamed it the Shrine of Hypocrisy. The American Indian Movement renamed it the Shrine of Hypocrisy and attempted to vandalize it. <laughs> They attempted to kick a bucket of uh, oil-based red paint over, uh, I believe it was Washington's face. 
So y'all in New York, you, you beat us to the punch because um, they, <laughs> they, never, they never got there. But it was, uh, I believe it was Dennis Banks, Russell Means, Madonna Thunderhawk and some others, a small group who had set up an occupation in 1970 atop, um, oh, and Lee Brightman from United Native Americans set up an encampment atop of Mount Rushmore. And as they were about ready to kick the paint over the side of the, the cliff, you know, the park rangers came and arrested them. And there's a story that Dennis, Dennis Banks told where he was like, you know, feet away from kicking this bucket over. And then he was, you know, tackled. So um, the plan was thwarted. But it's important to recognize, you know, we went through Lincoln. Lincoln's on Mount Rushmore. We already went through his legacy. Thomas Jefferson was the architect of Indian removal. Often Jackson gets blamed for Indian removal. But, you know, Thomas Jefferson, the reason why he facilitated the Louisiana Purchase is because he wanted to remove all the southeastern indigenous nations west of the Mississippi River. He had already imagined, you know, he was like, imagining this kind of like you know large indian reservation that would be built out there and it was only when jackson you know became president that that became a reality right indian removal you know what they say if you can desecrate a statue here you can do it anywhere new york new york (laughs) so um I read a decent chunk of your book and found it very interesting. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the occupation at Standing Rock, um, in what ways it was kind of a culmination of, you know, centuries of indigenous struggle and activism and um, how you would situate occupations as a tactic in the fight for social justice and maybe some of the things that came out of this rebellion that you hope to see carried forward into the future? I realize that's a multi-part question. Yeah, it's a good question because occupation and blockades have been a tactic for indigenous people, like going back at least to the 1980s. There was an occupation in the Black Hills called Raymond Yellow Thunder Camp um, to basically reclaim the Black Hills. Um, And, you know, the as a tactic, you know, of course, in, in like 1969, the takeover of Alcatraz was an occupation. The takeover of the, B, the BIA was an occupation. Uh, but then black, uh, blockades became really the, the primary mode of resistance. And that was, that was something that, was, um, that came, you know, came to prominence during the uh, I Don't Know More movement uh, in, this, in the winter of 2012 and 2013. Uh, specifically the Mi'kmaq uh, people had blockaded the rail lines. And, and more recently, you know, when um, the Wet'suwet'en camp was raided, uh, a lot of people all the way out in Six Nations and Haudenosaunee territory, you know, on the eastern part of so-called Canada, began blockading rail lines. So this is a tactic that's been employed. And, you know, the, the camp itself is is also uh, a tactic of indigenous you know, um, movements. And it, it really has its origins in the survival schools, the, the alternative education models, the alternative ways of living that are, you know, really were pioneered. Um, that's a bad term to say, but pioneered in like <laughs> Minneapolis, uh, where the American Indian movement was founded. And it was a way to provide language and culture education to indigenous youth who were on relocation. And so you saw a lot of that kind of coalescing at Standing Rock, you had language camps, you had culture camps, you had people living in community um, the way that they, they wanted to live, right? Um, and this, you know, this was this happened in the context of 
this mass kind of police mobilization. You had 90 different law enforcement jurisdictions there descending on the camps. Um, but the camps themselves, you know, also brought together, uh, reunited, I should say, the Ocheti Shakoi, the Lakota and the Dakota nations, the nations of the seven camp, uh, campfires as they're known. Uh, and that wasn't something that really translated to uh, the media very well because we're just kind of seen as like a homogenous group of people, but internally and locally, like within the nations themselves, it had a huge significance because nothing had happened like that since, you know, the white, you know, since we were fighting the government in the 19th, in the 19th century. Uh, so it was, you know, in the absence of like empire and the absence of, you know, in, of, you know, settler colonialism. And we created this, this world, you know, people, the entire camp structure was organized around meeting people's needs, like such as getting, getting them food, getting them, you know, shelter, uh, giving them legal support and a place to stay, you know, like those are things that everyone needs right now in this particular moment. And as you know, one of the kind of outcomes of that, I would say is that the mutual aid networks amongst indigenous communities were actually strengthened. And so you see a very healthy and robust response to like the COVID-19 uh, crisis as it's impacted tribal communities, both on the reservation and off the reservation. There's an extensive network here in the Southwest of mutual aid, you know, bringing food out to the remote parts of the, the Navajo nation, but then also providing PPE and food uh, to Navajo and uh, indigenous people who are living on the streets here or who, who are poor and don't have access to those things. So that's based on our, our kinship, right? That's based on the way that indigenous people make relations. That's our, that's our political, that's our alternative political order. We were against the law at Standing Rock because we represented an alternative political order, right? When we say like, you know, everyone's like, oh, we're just gonna burn, you know, everything to the ground and start over and reboot. That's the wrong way to think about it because indigenous people have modes of living and modes, uh, ways of, of being uh, in relation with, you know, the human world and the non-human world. And that's really what we saw kind of coalesce at Standing Rock and really grow in communities. And to kind of give uh, an example of this, you know, in, in, Ferg in the Ferguson uprising, you know, all the gangs united against the cops, right? And we're, we're seeing that now, right? All, like, all, you know, they have all these social programs about how do we end gang violence in black communities? How do we end gang violence in Native American communities, right? When, you know, in these moments of rebellion, right, everyone knows who the problem is, right? And so in Standing Rock, in the, in the harsh winter months, it was told to, the, to me uh, anecdotally that in some of these communities that have high rates of youth suicide, that that was almost non-existent as the camps themselves, you know, existed because it represented a, a real alternative and a challenge to the status quo. So that's what these kinds of things, you know, um, mean to indigenous people. And you have an entire generation of young folks uh, who had that experience and you can't take it away from them. You have an entire generation of young folks who are getting tear gas, maced, you know, uh, this, in, this, in this round, right? Because now Standing Rock is everywhere. <laughs> um, and you can't take those experiences away from them. Yeah, I think that positive vision of what we want to build up instead is really, really important um, in terms of like, we talk a lot about prefigurative politics mm -hmm. on this show. 
building a new society in the shell of the old. And um, I, I also think a lot about it in, ter- in relation to the abolitionist movement, right? Because we don't just want to abolish, we want to present better alternatives for how we could be living. And I don't think it's a coincidence that some good models for restorative justice have come out of indigenous communities and traditions that have managed to survive from pre-capitalist society. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I mean, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good way to put it. And I think I'll, I'll just say this, like in indigenous communities, the question, like we're often like talking about decolonization, um, and out of the, the kind of black, freedom movement you've had the question of of abolition at the forefront they're not mutually exclusive like projects right they're very deeply informed by each other yeah i was going to ask you about um some of the connections between the indigenous rights movement um and other liberation movements including um black liberation uh, and anti-colonial struggles around the world, as well as, you know, feminism and LGBT rights. Like, how do you see these struggles as being connected? That's a, I mean, that's a really big question. Um, I'd recommend folks for an easy answer and, uh, you know, for folks to read, I'm going to give you some homework. Um, There's a good, there's there's a book that I co-edited with Jessica and Dylan called Standing with Standing Rock. And the first piece in it is written by Kim Talbert, where she makes all of those connections in a very, uh, and I think she does it in like 1500 words. So it's a really short piece. It's really accessible. You can find it online at the Cultural Anthropology um, website. I think it's called like Hotspot Series or something. But basically her argument in that is to show how indigenous, you know, communities and struggles have you know yeah we have sovereignty it's a defensive tactic right but um we also have uh caretaking and we also have you know making relations as uh, a tactic and these those are often seen as kind of like gendered forms of labor uh or you know they're often taken up by uh, non-men specifically as as a form of you know a radical potentiality or radical politics and it's really within the LGBTQ uh, and the two spirit uh, communities that were, you know, that that are at the forefront of theorizing this, right? And what it means to be in relation, living in good relation, because you know, as as I, I detail in the book itself, you know, when the patriarchs came, they left patriarchs when they left, right? Uh, we've internalized that system. Um, at the same time, we've internalized anti-blackness within our communities, just like you know, dominant society, because we were colonized by dominant society. And those, those, the question of um, of two spirit and LGBTQ liberation really was more uh, central to Standing Rock um, than than I would say like the question of anti-blackness. Even though in this moment in time, indigenous movements are confronting that reality. And I'll say this. You know, the, the George Floyd protests, the Black Lives Matter protests have lit, raised the consciousness uh, of this country as well as the world, right? It's, it's a historic moment. Um, and it's because of the, the question of white supremacy that we have a heightened level of class consciousness, even amongst indigenous communities. And in a place like Minneapolis, you had a lot of strong connections between Black Lives Matter and, you know, the kind of historic uh, indigenous movements. Black Lives Matter at uh, Minneapolis was in 
at Standing Rock. They sent frequent delegations there, right? So those 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 connections had already been made. But even going back further into like the Red Power movement, for example, Red Power, Black Power were not mutually exclusive terms. They were actually both coined around the same time. I think uh, Stokely Car- Carmichael or Kwame Ture uh, actually coined Black Power, and and he was in conversation with people like. Clyde Warrior, who who coined Red Power, right, and they under they began to understand themselves in the peoplehood framework, which was a framework of of nationalism, frankly, right, and the potential, uh, you know, of national liberation for Black and Indigenous communities, and oftentimes when these histories are written, they're written as separate histories, right. We write oh between Indigenous and White relations or Black and White relations. We never talk about those kind of those ties, and I'll just I'll just you know end this particular conversation um, with an anecdote um, from history. The first you know European settlement that that kind of made its way onto what later became the United States happened in I think it was in 1523. It was a Spanish settlement, and it was led by this conquistador whose name I can't recall. It's Ayon um, something something. He brought with him enslaved African people as well as enslaved uh, Caribbean indigenous people. And he tried to create a plantation, uh, a Spanish plantation in what is, you know, presently South Carolina. Well, these enslaved African people and enslaved indigenous people found a way to communicate with each other. And then they also found a way to communicate with the surrounding indigenous nation, the Guales. And they planned a revolt and they you know they evicted the spanish from the continent and those uh, african people then joined the guales and married in they were the first non-indigenous people to become permanent residents of this hemisphere people want to talk about 1619 fine but this is the real like foundation of a revolutionary tradition in this country it begins in 1523 with allied indigenous and uh, african slave revolts Hell yeah. So speaking of, you talked about uh, sort of sovereignty and nationalism as a tactic, right? Mm. And I've been thinking about this tension a little bit because, you know, as leftists and internationalists and communists, which is what we are here at the Antifada, we want to abolish private property, we want to abolish borders, and we want to abolish nations. Um, And we've seen how these things have been used as tools of colonialism and oppression. Um, And yet, you know, protecting the borders of tribal sovereignty and establishing rights as nations have been very important tactics for keeping indigenous people from being wiped out by settler colonial society. Um, And they've also been used in national liberation struggles around the world. So how do you navigate this kind of tension I don't know if that's the right word for it. And um, how does decolonization fit into the broader fight for global socialism or communism? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. It's something that we confront continuously as, you know, the Red Nation, as indigenous socialists, as indigenous communists, as indigenous anarchists, right? Um, and I'll just, I'll say, uh, there's several ways to answer it. And I'll answer it with the question of who's not recognized as indigenous, right? There's like, I believe it's around two and a half million 
uh, indigenous people in this country who are not recognized simply uh, by the fact, uh, simply because they've crossed an international border, the US-Mexico border, right? And the reason we know this is because their first language isn't Spanish, but they don't speak English, right? And, and so there's a, lar a lot of the people who are coming from the South, from Central America and Mexico um, are indigenous people, right? But they're not recognized because sovereignty, as we understand it, is bestowed by a settler colonial regime. And so that is a problem. And fundamentally, you know, a lot of indigenous nations, you know, that sovereignty is a trap. It's a double-edged double sword. So the defense contracts that are available to indigenous nations, they get, they get priority, like they partner with CPB, Customs and Border Patrol, Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, um, to build military bases and occupy territories like the Green Zone in Iraq, right? Um, Cherokee Nation has contracts there. Uh, but they also get contracts to build like biometric scanners and airports and things like that. So in, in many ways, indigenous nations aren't immune from becoming extensions of the settler colonial project, just like the, you know, the Palestinian Authority in many ways operates with hand in hand with the Israeli settler yes. colonial project. So I'm not going to like I'm not yes. going to like paint a rosy picture of tribal sovereignty. But at the same time leftists especially non-indigenous white leftists in this country need to understand that you are living on stolen land and you know you're not you're not responsible for the history of how that land got stolen but you you've inherited that history and you live in this present so it's your obligation to help us reconstruct the future and the and and in this moment in time tribal sovereignty is the best defense against extractivist pro uh, projects and capitalist development. And I'm not gonna whitewash this, you know, to also say that like indigenous nations do participate in resource colonial or resource extraction, right? Much in the same way that, you know, like uh, a country like Ecuador, you know, wanted to nationalize its, you know, its, its natural resources or Bolivia wanted to national, uh, nationalize its natural resources. The reason why those countries chose resource nationalism is because all options were left out on the table. You know, there, there were no other options to develop, right? And you have to understand that the, the capitalist economy that developed in the United States is a result of plundering indigenous nations as well as the global south, right? The Navajo Nation, yes, it participates in the coal economy, the oil and gas economy, but it does so because it's a resource colony of the United States. They're not allowed to diversify their economy. They're not even allowed to... Um, retain most of the profits um, that they get from resource or from resource extraction. So while they're putting in coal and oil that's powering the Southwest, one third of their population lives without electricity, right? Um, so the question of sovereignty is important because it's, it's in my, you know, there's some people who are like post-sovereign and they want to be against sovereignty. I think it's, I think it's an immature to throw out sovereignty as a useful tool because what is holding at bay, you know, what is holding at bay Trump right now, you know, in, when he's going to uh, Mount Rushmore, it's, it's indigenous sovereignty because we have a rightful claim to the Black Hills. It's our sovereign territory. We have, even the, the Supreme Court ruled that they took the Black, Hole, they, the, they took the Black Hills um, through theft and through coercion. And illegally, right? But the Supreme Court can't award land back to us, so they tried to award um, 
a monetary settlement, which we've refused to accept. But indigenous sovereignty is also holding at bay um, resource extraction, right? And we, as indigenous people, that's our fight. You know, we don't need outsiders coming in and telling us that, like, yeah, you guys are just colonial constructs. We know that, right? We know that the system isn't doesn't benefit us. Tribal governments are in the same department as as wildlife. They're in the same department as natural resources, the Department of Interior, and that is for a reason. Like that that contradiction isn't lost on us. But at the same time, we have to recognize that that's what we have right now. That's what's keeping the integrity of our nations alive with all of its flaws and contradictions. And we want something different, but to have something different, we all like decolonization isn't just an indigenous problem. It's, it's a white people's problem. It's a black problem. It's all of our problems, right? It's uh, yeah, something that you touch on a little bit towards, uh, towards the end of the book in, the, in a chapter about indigenous internationalism and, and kind of looping things back around to, to the uprising that we're going through right now. First of all, you connected uh, the, the foundation of the American Indian movement to the civil rights struggle and the Black Panthers, and then also this, this internationalist idea with the uh, Black Panther idea of, of intercommunalism. Um, and you know, I feel like that's going to be a lot to go into, but I, I think there is a, a lot of, although uh, indigenous sovereignty is a very particular and unique question when we're looking at internationalism, you, you, your book also finds a lot of connections between this like fight for red power and black power uh, and fight for socialism and international socialism in general. Uh, and decolonization, uh, I, I, don't, I, guess, I guess maybe we could just maybe end with this question, which is not an easy one. Is, is, is decolonization a differing vision um, as like a, a revolutionary fight for socialism um, or, or is it something that you see as compatible? And, and what would it look like? I'm real curious, like <laughs> digging into it. Um, what would it look like for the U.S. government to give land back to Native American tribes? Or perhaps more optimistically, what would this demand look like amid a revolution wherein all of the land is being communized and collectivized for, you know, the good of humanity? Right. I, so I want to I want to start by saying one thing, and this is probably the simple answer to the question that you that you asked before. The problem isn't indigenous sovereignty. The problem is indigenous genocide. Right. And let, let's be clear about that. And so when we talk about decolonization, you know, the goal isn't, you know, yeah, we want a, a more robust sovereign uh, indigenous sovereignty, but also like. We're talking about sovereignty outside of the Westphalian state model, right? And we have to think beyond these kind of like Western constructs because, and even how we understand property, right? Because that, that gets into that, you know, that old canard of the eco-fascist great replacement kind of narrative of like, well, indigenous people are going to do to us what, you know, we did to them. They're going to genocide us and take our homes, if that's the limit of your imagination, then, you know, that's just this very cynical vision. And so I think in this moment in time, like, I don't know what decolonization looks like, to be honest. I know that it's not a metaphor. I know that it's not taking down just a statue. I know that it's the return of indigenous land, but it's not the return of land to put it back into a different kind of form of property, a private property ownership, right? It's something different, right? It means, it means something like that I don't think we have the language for right now and this might be like utopian or whatever 
But I think it's for it's for us as leftists, as socialists, as communists to struggle over and to continue to argue over, but to actually take seriously the demand for land return, right? Um, take seriously that demand because it's not like you're just going to get a new landlord, right? Um, we have to actually think about, okay, so my relation with the land right now isn't a good relation because it's primarily structured by this colonial system. So what would a good relation with the land itself and the people who are its original caretakers, not owners, original caretakers, what does that look like? How am I, how can I be a caretaker, right? Going back to Scott Williams, the, the hero, the Antifa hero who was shot saving people's lives, a white guy, right? Most of those people in that crowd here in Albuquerque when he was shot were indigenous people. And had he not defended us in that particular moment in time, more people probably would have gotten hurt and possibly killed. He was a, a water protector who was also at Standing Rock, right? Peep, white people who walked through those gates became water protector. It is totally possible. You know, we don't want, they're not like trying to bestow Indian names on people <laughs> or like, you know, trying to do that kind of shit. But you can be a land defender. You can be a water protector and be a non-indigenous person. It's possible. It's about ontologically changing the way that you live with the land, right? I call it, I call it settler onticide, right? It's the complete annihilation mm. of a settler ontology. And I don't, I don't mean just like the cultural practices and beliefs. I mean the institutions that uphold it, right? doesn't mean that we're like, you know, it's not like the white genocide thing. Um, it's actually to think beyond and to decenter a settler identity and to think about what proliferates in the absence of, of settler colonialism, you know, black life, indigenous life, you know, all life must proliferate. I, oh shit. I just said an all lives matter thing. Can you cut that out? <laughs> cut that out. We know what you meant. Yeah. But it's, it's and, a collective. Andy's going to cut it just, out for you. I do think that there's a way to express the, the commonality between different struggles and the, the way different people are oppressed by police uh, you know the the way AIM was fighting against police violence in uh, in Minneapolis, and the way uh, the the Black Panthers are fighting against police violence in Oakland. In that sense, they do they do come together and build together with a, a common history of struggle, even if they're separated in, in unique ways. Just generally, these questions are so hard to talk about, not only because a lot of people are reckoning with them and struggling with them for the the first time, but also because, and this is something that I really got, uh, anyone who reads your book, which I really recommend, really gets a sense of, is that there is a lot of history uh, that we you know, certainly aren't taught and don't have a ton of access right. to. I think to go off the point that you just made about like intercommunalism and like how do these, you know, these struggles connect, I think there's a tendency to be like, oh, how do I view it from my unique standpoint to connect with this other thing? And it's like, that's why you need communism. That's why you need socialism. You need a universal like work, you know, you need proletarian revolution. You need a universal, but that revolution isn't like a, re a reduction of like a class character. Class is fundamentally about power, right? And we engage, we live class through colonialism. We live class through race. We live it through gender. We live it through so-called identity politics. And that universal then becomes a multitude of particulars, right? And that's beautiful. That's a beautiful yep. like vision. Like that's communism, right? Uh, that's what and, we want. And one Hell thing yeah. that the finding what, the universal in the particular. And one of the things that that, that this history does for us is, is kind of break down. I think this vulgar teleology that we have when talking about progress, because any 
socialism worth its name, any socialism that's going to give a path forward for humanity uh, moving forward is going to have to be an eco-socialism. Um, instead of just imagining, you know, the right techniques, the right technologies in order to do that, we can recognize that, as you said, there were people, there were stewards of this land, you know, with, with, with uh, generations and generations of experience and how to live with the land, you know, with respect to the land and also, you know, uh, in peace with the land. And it, we don't have to start from scratch. We don't have to just completely turn everything upside down and burn it all down. There are people, there are knowledges out there that we could tap into as we try to, you know, make a better world that could be sustained. Absolutely. That was exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Nailed it. I mean, one, one way I like to think about it is, right, we are all in this common fight together for uh, global socialism, communism, whatever you want to call it. But it makes a whole lot of sense, I think, to have voices and leaders from the people who've been protecting this land forever. Mm -hmm. And we're living in a much more harmonious way with it before capitalism came and destroyed everything. Right. Like that just makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, in also, I mean, just to add, I know we're running out of time, but just to add to that, it's like it's also not to romanticize. Indig like we we fuck shit up, you know. Like we we mess things up, but we have we mess things up and we learn from it. But we have a history of making mistakes and how we took care of the land. And sometimes, you know, there's even stories in our our own traditions about how we messed up the land, and you know we learn from mm -hmm. it. And it, like you said, like why reinvent? Um, just tap into the knowledges that exist, and they're they're dynamic. They've even internalized some of you know uh, other cultures, and it's a beautiful thing. And so. Imagine the end of settler colonialism, but that doesn't just mean that, like, you know, we're going to plop down some kind of pre-constructed system, right? I'm, if we believe in dialectical materialism, it's going to be a struggle, and it's something we're going to disagree on. It's something we're going to have to struggle and recombine on, you know, and that's, that's the beautiful struggle of it all. And I, I'm glad that you all I, came to those conclusions, all, you know, all three of you. I really appreciate hearing that. Well, you, you helped get us there, man. Uh, this was this was a really, really excellent uh, episode. Nick, thank you so much for being on. We'll, we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I love the show, by the way. Oh, oh thank you so much. I love your show, too. I just got into it. Cool. Everybody should listen to Red Nation. And um, yeah. just uh, one note as we leave, I wanna, I'm going to put a, something in the, the show notes about supporting Red Dawn Fallis, who is a, a longstanding political prisoner uh, who was set up in, in the course of Standing Rock. Um, so if, if listeners can do just, just one thing uh, is check out, uh, check out her case. There's also, oh, yeah. there's also no dappopoliticalprisoners.org. Um, there are, okay. I think there are four uh, political prisoners that they work with. Yeah, I, I always like to end on a call to action for how um, how our listeners can get involved. You know, you just listen to this episode. You're really pumped to get into the struggle. Like, you got any recommendations? Um, so locally, you know, there's a Justice for Scott Williams campaign, but also um, Clifton uh, White was a black activist who was arrested and detained by police and you know it's it's a really awful situation so 
people can Google those things, Justice for Clinton, uh, Clifton, but also Justice for Scott, uh, to find out more information. Those are the campaigns that we're supporting locally. Okay, I will put those in the show notes as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great rest of your night. The salmon will run, the mountain will breathe, the rivers will flow. The rainbow is here, and prophecy tells us all generations will hear. Nations and our people that been living here for thousands of years. Stand up. We've been fighting for our freedom since the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria. Stand up. Like Geronimo, Sitting Bull, Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, Lenin Peltier. Stand up. Now they poisoning the waters for our sons and our daughters, so we on the frontier. We won. One nation, one cause, one people, one tribe. Now it's us against the pipeline. Get on your feet for Stanley Rock, and we'll show you how strong we could be when we unify. To all my native people, recognize yourself, keep your head up. To all my tribal people, recognize yourself, keep your head up. To all my native people, to all the original people, to all my indigenous people, recognize yourself, keep your head up. Planet Earth, it's been spinning, we've been living and dying, but giving birth the first of many nations, celebrating them days when all that got made came after what got me. These days we cater to these internet memes, internet streams, it seems them streams aren't clean. We need the whole story seen, we're hassling before water has gasoline in it. Malcolm X moment, Martin Luther King with a dream and war bonnet, wounded knee plus Alcatraz dog on it, this is for the rock with prayers we stand on it. Oh yeah, we playing on it, the earth we camp on it, in a sweat lodge singing our songs with grandfather's heat rocks all in the spot, we splash on them with a beatbox from my boy B-Jam on it, said a prayer for the black snake killers, train on the front lines, they you the realest, stand for your people, stand for your family, stand with standing rock, stand for humanity. It takes a group of people who actually care about you know, Mother Earth and life and water being sacred and the land being sacred to say we stand up. To all my-